All right, we're in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to go all the way through 23. So it's kind of a long story, and we're just going to tell the story. It's kind of beautiful. Let me pray before we get going here. Father, as we approach your word, we pray that uh, you would teach us from it, and uh, that we would learn from the example of the Apostle Paul, how to deal with affliction, and how to use wisdom in dealing with opposition and persecution, and we pray that you would help us to understand uh, what this might mean for us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, as biblical Christianity becomes the enemy of American culture, <laughs> which it really has, there, there is quite a, a bit of talk about if, when, and how uh, we should use the government's laws to protect ourselves and our institutions. It's a big discussion in the church today, and people have different, different opinions about it. It's an important discussion and what follows from today's text and the chapters that follow this text that are coming up in the weeks ahead, they give us some insight into the life of Paul uh, and, and in this question as well. So Paul is very willing to use man's laws for protection because God ordained those laws to be in place. That's the way he's looking at it. So he, and he does that just so he can continue his ministry. That, that's it. So if there's some level of protection legally for him, he'll take it. That's the idea. So last time we left Paul in Roman custody. And if you have been with us, you know that Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner recesses of the temple where Jewish men can go, but no women can go and no Gentiles can go that part of it and it, it was a false accusation but a riot started and he was literally dragged, seized and dragged out of the temple and was getting beaten up and the outrage and the kind of the riot that was ensuing was so loud that the uh, the Roman tribune in the fortress of Antonia just next door to the temple they could hear it and he raced down with two centuries that would be 200 soldiers maybe that many or something like that two, two uh, full companies of soldiers because he thought some kind of a horrible thing was going on and he rescued Paul out of that. He demanded that Paul be handed over to him, which he was. And Paul asked, as he was being literally carried into the fortress of Antonio, the Romans put chains on him and took him up these great stairs. And at the top of the stairs, Paul said, let me speak to the people. And so the tribune said, okay, you can try it, you know. So he did. He gave, he gave his testimony. He talked about how he would, the risen Jesus appeared to him. And everybody was pretty quiet up until this one point they actually listen but so verse 17 of chapter 22 I'm just going to kind of go back here so the mob is listening it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw Jesus saying to me make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me so this is years before this incident when he first came to Jerusalem as a Christian now of course he was sent out of Jerusalem to persecute Christians. He came back as one. So verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by, approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he, Jesus said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, that was the word, that Gentiles. As soon as he said that, they started to totally freak out, the people down below. So Paul proclaimed, Paul claimed that Jesus said that the Jews, the chosen ones, were not going to accept his testimony, but the Gentiles would. 
and that just causes this incredible thing. That's an intolerable idea. And in our culture today, when we say things that are intolerable ideas to our culture, they get angry too and throw dirt in the air. So the crowd explodes in anger. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Well, the Roman Tribune decides that Paul's speech is over now (laughs) and uh, orders him to be taken inside so he can kind of get to the bottom of this mess. Look, he didn't even know what's going on. He just goes down there and and arrested this guy. Now he hears Paul's speech and his testimony about Jesus appearing to him and all that, but then the crowd freaks out. So verse 23, it says that as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Let's torture Paul and find out what this is all about. (laughs) So examined by scourging. Now if you know about the death of Jesus you know that he was scourged. That's worse than a beating. Um, it's, It's started the same way. They stretch you out. They could do that on a post maybe, uh, tie, you, tie you to a post, or they could have one guy on one end of you and one guy at another end of you and lay you on the floor and one guy's got thongs on your hands stretching you that way and the other guy's got thongs on your feet stretching you that way and then they scourge you. So the scourge is this particular thing and there's pictures of these that the Romans left us. So it's a stick about yay long and it's got these uh, thong things coming off of it, these leather woven uh, things, three or four straps that have bits of bone and lead weights and metal pieces perhaps sewn into them so that they they whip you they not only are breaking you with the weights they're ripping you apart so it's a it's a brutal beating it's it's well I've never been whipped with a whip but it's even worse than that if you can imagine that that would be horrible but um, it's extremely painful extremely horrible if you do it to people or even if you threaten to they'll, they'll they'll talk if you're trying to get information, they'll usually, they're usually, will talk. Well, Paul doesn't want to start the process. He's more than willing to talk, but um, this guy's not going to believe him unless he's tortured. So um, what happens is he's got this card to play, Paul does, that's gotten him out of jams like this before. So the tribune, Claudius, goes back to his uh, office, and so Paul turns to this centurion, the captain in our terms, and he asks a question, verse 25. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? No judge has condemned me and I'm a citizen of Rome and you're going to scourge me? So we've mentioned before that Roman citizenship provides extraordinary legal protection. Not mo- most people in the Roman Empire were not citizens, especially if you weren't from Italy, but a lot of people were, and it was usually conferred for some good deed or something. So Paul asked the centurion, "Do you like your job?" That's what he's really asking. "Do you like your job? Uh, how will how will it go with you if it's found out that you violated the rights of a citizen of Rome?" So. The centurion, I picture him rather wide-eyed, goes to the office of the tribune. That's it's translated commander in my Bible, but that's tribune is his office. He's, a, he's like a colonel, okay? So when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And so the, uh, the tribune immediately drops what he's doing and heads to the barracks where they're going to beat up Paul. 
this is a serious matter for him to violate the rights of a Roman citizen. He had no idea Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, so you know the Roman Cicero, the famous Greek, uh, I mean ro the f not Greek, the famous Roman um, orator and head of government and all that stuff. It says, he said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. So they're about to commit an abomination in the eyes of the Roman Empire. He was ordered, he, that centurion was ordered to commit an abomination. So uh, verse 27, the commander came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. So now Claudius Lysias knows how much, he knows how much citizenship costs and uh, Paul is hardly wearing clothes that would suggest that he had enough money to buy citizenship so I think he's kind of doubting Paul and he says uh, he says in verse 28 I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money so he's not a native Roman either but he bought his citizenship and it cost a lot and Paul doesn't look like a guy that could pay for that so verse 29 therefore those who are about to examine him immediately Oh, no, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Am I? Oh, I skipped, tw it's 28, yeah. The commander answered, I acquired this ship. Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. That's it, that's the line we wanted. I was actually born a citizen. That makes Claudius really worried because to have citizenship by birth meant that Paul's dad did something that was very favorable to the empire or the emperor himself and was granted citizenship. So that's... Uh, that's a more difficult situation for him. So he's in trouble. So now verse 29. Therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman. Because he had put him in chains. Just doing that was a violation of Paul's rights. So chaining him like that. So this is a serious problem. But the tribune is a pretty wise guy. So he's thinking how am I going to get out of this? And how can I find out what's really going on? So he decides, I'm going to call, and he has the authority to do this, I'm going to call a, a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. And I'm going to take Paul there, and I'm going to listen as they interact and find out what's really going on. Because if this is just a religious thing, I'll let him go. But if it's something more serious than that, then we can try him. So that's, that's where he's going. So verse 30, on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So I'm sure they all showed up. I mean, there was a near riot and it involved basically the whole city. So I'm sure the entire council came. So here's Paul's opportunity, right? Uh, he's standing there before them. So chapter 23 now, we're moving into that. Luke tells us what Paul said to the Sanhedrin. This is the highest Jewish court in the land. The same court which 20 years or so before this condemned Jesus to death. Um, probably mostly different people there now, but um, same, same, or same system. So Paul starts like this, verse 1. Paul looking intently at the council said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now what does Paul mean here? Um, he has a perfectly good conscience because he did all kinds of horrible things. Well he either means from when he became a Christian but I think he means his whole life has been, he's lived consistently with what he believed. That, that's I think what he's saying here. His, his reputation publicly is stellar. He lived always according to his beliefs. Wasn't he a persecutor of Christians? Yes and he did that according to his conscience. I mean he felt 
no remorse at all for being a persecutor while harming Christians because he believed then that he was serving God. So he was actually faithful to what his heart was telling him as they say. And that's kind of Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 and following where he's describing his past life. We read that passage actually in the service last week where he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found Christ Jesus. So his conscience actually bound him to do horrible acts which at the time he believed to be righteous. So don't always tell people to follow their conscience because they might believe in evil. (laughs) My conscience is telling me to do something really bad because our conscience is corrupted along with the rest of our nature. So um, Paul's was too uh, at that time. So that doesn't excuse him because in the very next verse there in 1 Timothy 1.15 he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. So he's not saying I wasn't a horrible sinner, he was, but his conscience actually affirmed his sin. So a lot of people don't have a conscience telling them it's wrong to beat up that person or to hurt that person or to hang this person or whatever the thing is because that's what we do, you know. It's all right to me. So he's not excusing himself, he's just uh, saying he's been consistent in his life and following what he believes. That's kind of how he starts off. Well the high priest who was a very arrogant and very nasty man immediately decides that Paul needs to be put into his place for saying that. So verse 2 chapter 23 the high priest Ananias commanded that those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. BAM! They just punch him in the face. Now the high priest He's a guy named Ananias. He became the high priest about A.D. 47. And he held office for about a dozen years or so. He was not a good man. So we know about him. So we've quoted Josephus, a Jewish historian who was a contemporary of Paul time-wise in life. I don't know if they ever met. But um, he wrote quite a bit about history during that time. He was a, a Jewish historian who was well regarded by the Romans and he wrote a history of that time period and he talks about Ananias here so this is Josephus he said this younger Ananias who as we have told you already this is just part of his book took the high priesthood was a bold man in his temper and very insolent he was also of the sect of the Sadducees who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews as we have already observed. When therefore, now this is another thing that happened under him, when Ananias was of this disposition he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Governor Festus was now dead and Albinus was upon the road so he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ whose name was James and some others. So this is the James that wrote the little epistle of James in the back of the Bible. He formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law and he delivered them to be stoned. So this is the high priest who had Jesus brother killed. So this is that guy. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, James was. Then a little later he says, the high priest Ananias increased in glory every day and to this to a great degree and had obtained the favor and esteem of the citizens in a signal manner giving them presents. He also had servants who were very wicked 
who joined themselves to the boldest sort of people and went to the threshing floors and took away the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence and did not refrain from beating such as would not give these tithes to them. So people are down at the threshing floor separating out their grain putting aside the 10% that's going to go to the support the priests as they're supposed to do according to the law of Moses. So Ananias' guys would go down there and tell, tell those people give us that 10%. They said no that's for our priests and they would, it's the Levites and he would say they would say give it to us now buddy and they would beat them up and take it and it all would go to Ananias instead of the people it was supposed to support. So Josephus says so the other high priest acted in a like manner as did, the, did his servants without anyone being able to prohibit them so that some of the priests that were old were wont to be supported with those tithes they died for want of food. So according to Josephus this guy stole the tithes to support elderly priests and they died of starvation because he wouldn't uh, allow them to have their share in that. So, so he's not a good guy the, the high priest Ananias he's a bad person. Um, so fi- here's another thing five years before meeting Paul Ananias was sent to Rome because he was uh, suspected of being a malcontent by the Romans but he convinced the Emperor Claudius of his loyalty and Herod Agrippa kind of helped him there and he became extremely rich and powerful and Josephus says he even had his uh, rivals, political rivals assassinated. So he's not a good guy. Very pro-Roman. In fact he ended up, um, you know when the Jewish war started in AD 66 he had to flee because he was known to be so pro-Roman all the Jewish patriots hated him and he was found hiding in an aqueduct and they pulled him out and slaughtered him right there. So so he's a creep. He's not a real defender of Jewish interests either. So here with Paul he's just throwing his weight around. So they punch Paul in the face, an an illegal act and Paul's outraged. Verse 3. Paul said to him, God's going to strike you you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? That is not what happened when Jesus was punched in the very same place. Remember when they punched him at, at his trial? They just struck him. What did he do? He said, if I've done something wrong, tell me what it is. If not, why did you strike me? That's the correct way to deal with that situation. Paul's like, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whitewashed wall. Now, you know what? Why do you put whitewash on a wall? Because it's rotting inside and crumbling and you're trying to make it. looks nice on the outside if you paint it white, right? You know, uh, so he's calling him pretty bad names here a crumbly rotten person anyway so um, it's a pure insult now that's, that's, that's kind of a violation of the law of Moses Paul doing that actually so verse 4 it says the bystander says do you revile God's high priest and Paul actually was guilty of breaking Deuteronomy 22:28, which you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. So let's go Brandon really is not appropriate for Christians to be shouting at a game. Because uh, you're not supposed to curse a ruler of your people. And Paul flat out cursed a ruler of his people here and he instantly regrets it. He's not proud. He, he, when he's confronted with sin he's immediately responsive. So Paul said, I was not aware brethren that he was the high priest for it is written you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He totally agreed with that. So he knew that he did the wrong thing. He says he was unaware and that could be the case because this isn't a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. It's a less formal meeting that's called by the tribune so um, he might not have been dressed in a certain way or in a certain position in the, in the chamber for that 
to be recognized who he was because Paul hadn't been there when he was high priest for a long time. Anyway, um, Paul's off to a bad start. He's alienated the high priest. He's broken the law of Moses. He's lost his temper. Um, this isn't good. But Paul is, is sharp too. He's not a dummy. So uh, he considers something that's been true about the Sanhedrin for a long time. And as a rather well-known uh, Pharisee himself, a rabbi, he, he knows this is going on. So the, the Sanhedrin is not a monolithic um, body of, of men. It's kind of like Congress. You've got Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals, right? So they had their own divisions. They had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were the minority, but they were popular. The Sadducees were the majority on the council, but they were very unpopular. And they were very different, very different in their belief system. Uh, it was like night and day between them. And generally the Sadducees looked down their noses on the Pharisees because they were lower class. And the Pharisees despised them because they had lived this opulent lifestyle, the Sadducees. And they rejected so much theology. The, 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 the Sadducees were kind of like modern day liberal Christians. They didn't really believe in the doctrines that were in the Bible. So the Sadducees were well to do, very rich. The Pharisees were more of the people and all worked trades like Paul was a tent maker. Priests, or the Sadducees were mostly priests. Not all of them were Sadducees, but most of the priests were. The Pharisees were more on the scribe side, Bible men. The Sadducees said only the books of Moses count. Uh, none of the rest of the Old Testament is really worthy of anything to be studied. And the Pharisees said all of it's good and they also were strong on tradition as we know and oral teaching as well. The Sadducees denied that there was an afterlife. They said when you're dead that's it. There's no afterlife. The soul dies with the body. The Pharisees believed in the immortal soul and that we go on and we're going to face God when we die. The Sadducees denied that there were angels or demons or anything like that. There's no spiritual realm. And the Pharisees strongly believed in angels and demons and things like that. So they're really theologically like night and day. Like I said they're extremely different. Paul was a Pharisee, right, and he understands the dynamics in the room. So watch what he does in response to getting beaten, um, punched in the mouth. Verse 6, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He just got half the room on his side. He just did it. It's hard to exaggerate how brilliant this is. It's, it's just like modern politics, you know. Uh, throw out a loyalty test to your side and then everybody better rush over to it or they're a traitor to your party. You know how that's working right now on both sides? The extremes are kind of ruling everything. Paul just sent the Pharisees to the battlements. I mean, they're ready to fight. So I'm standing up for the hope of the resurrection. Jesus fulfilled that hope. Now that's what he believes. That's not really getting out yet. But that's what he says. Verse 7. He said this. There occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Nor an angel. Nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So what are the Pharisees are furious. You know they're standing up for Paul now. They're, they're throwing out scriptures. Uh, the opinions of rabbis. The rational arguments. They're all starting to get tossed around and the Sadducees are going back and forth with them. Verse 9. There occurred a great uproar and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly saying we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has talked to him. So Paul just did this perfectly. 
as far as his own protection goes. Now imagine being poor Tribune Claudius Lysias, um, hoping for direction from the council. Well he decides he needs to pull Paul out of the situation. Verse 10, again his primary obligation is to protect Paul's rights as a Roman citizen, so he's getting him out. And as the great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him, and bring him into the barracks. So I'm not sure what Paul was thinking the whole time. He, he's not out of trouble exactly, but he may be wondering what's in store for him, what's going to happen to him. So he's now in the hands of Rome. I mean that's his future destiny. He, he believes that God is sovereign. His heart is church planting. God has pulled him off the mission field. He's now in Roman custody. And the Lord graciously speaks to him that night. Verse 11. On the night immediately following the Lord stood by his side and said take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem so you must witness at Rome also. So Jesus knows what this is all about and Jesus is sharing with Paul part of his plan for his life. He had planned to go to Rome anyway, we've talked about that before, but he was hoping to go there as a church planter. But Jesus is saying you're going to go to Rome, but you're going to go as a prisoner of Rome. And you're going to bear witness there before the great powers of the empire. Now wouldn't it be great to have Jesus come to you at night and share with you that he has all your trials and troubles perfectly in his hand and you don't need to worry about that? It's, it's true whether he comes or not because Christ loves his children and he does have a plan for you and whatever that plan is and however it works out that's exactly what he wants for you. So you can say but I'd rather be but if this is his plan it's okay. What's your obligation? Just say okay I'm going to represent you according to your plan. Where I am I will represent you. That's, that's all you've got to do as a Christian. Paul's plan was not to go to Rome as a prisoner in chains, but that's what's been ordained for him. So whatever art we're dealing with that's what God has ordained for you for this hour. So trust him in that and just be faithful in that. That's what we're called to do. That's the big lesson from all of this. We're not always granted this personal knowledge, but we all are obligated to trust. Okay? So Poor uh, Claudius Lysias, let's go back to him. He's got to get Paul out of Jerusalem here. So um, things are happening, things are kind of breaking down, it's not going really well. Um, the Lord speaks, verse 12, let's look at verse 12. This is another problem Claudius has. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. That's a determined bunch. I'm never going to eat again until Paul's dead. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So when the Romans are bringing Paul down they're going to jump the guard and kill Paul. They've sworn it. That's how much they hate him. That would mean attacking Paul's guard. Uh, now a guard of normal size 40 men could overwhelm that. 
and, and kill Paul. They could succeed in doing that. Which means they're willing to die because the Romans are going to put up a fight. They're not just going to hand him over. So Ananias the high priest he agrees to the plot and uh, which is totally in character for him but they can't keep it a secret. Now this is not a professional spy organization. This is like more than 40 people kicking around this idea and promising to do it. So word is kind of spreading through some of the people in Jerusalem and Paul's nephew, his sister lives there, his his nephew hears about the plot. So verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul says, I think we need to share this information with the commander. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. So he's talking to Paul's nephew, the tribune. What is it you have to report to me? He said the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Do not listen to him to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him and now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go instructing him tell no one that you have notified me of these things getting kind of exciting huh? (laughs) So Rome will do what Rome does best. They're going to exercise their Roman muscle and ensure the safety of a citizen of the empire. So the tribunes determined to get Paul out of town. Just like one of those westerns you know and there's a big mob outside the jail and you got the the deputy and the sheriff and they're there. What are we going to do? We're going to take him out the back door and take him on a take him to another town you know and get the (coughs) The judge there to determine. That's what they always. That's exactly what's going on. Only this is a bigger situation. So the Tribune's going to get him out of town to take him to Caesarea. Caesarea is kind of on the coast, about sort of in the middle of Israel on the coast, and that's the center of Roman power in that area, in, in all of the Holy Land. That's where their center is. That's where their governor is, and that's where their their greatest troop concentrations are. So Luke actually gives us the letter that Claudius wrote to the governor in verse 25. Well, oh, back up to verse 23 real quick. I didn't read that yet. He called to him uh, two of the centurions, so this is the tribune, uh, Claudius, says get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So here's the letter, verse 25. This is how we know Claudius's name. It's in the letter. He wrote to the letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them and the, with the troops and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So it's kind of an interesting letter, and it's very much to Paul's advantage, actually. And the letter's accurate, too, except it's mostly accurate. Did you notice he kind of left out part of it? He said, we rescued him from the mob, having learned that he was a Roman, but he leaves out that we we were about to scourge him to find out, you know, he left all that part out. It's a typical report, you know, to protect yourself. 
Anyway, um, 470 troopers are going to be protecting Paul. That's pretty amazing. 200 heavy infantry, 200 light infantry, and 70 horse. That's almost half of Claudius's command, so that's pretty significant. So the foot soldiers just make sure he gets out of town, and then once that's secured, then the horsemen will take him on farther to Caesarea. So quite an escort for an old rabbi, as they say. So Paul's received in Caesarea with... uh, fairness verse 31 so the soldiers in accordance with their orders took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris the next day leaving the horsemen to go on with him they returned to the barracks now when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor they also presented Paul to him and when he had read it he asked from what province he was and when he learned that he was from Cilicia he said that's in Turkey today I will give you a hearing after your your accusers arrive also giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So they're actually pretty good accommodations. He's not being kept in the guards barracks like uh, what might typically happen. He's going to be in the house of the governor um, under arrest but pretty good situation. So this is this is just the first step on a very lengthy experience Paul's going to have getting to Rome. Uh, Many hazards await him but Paul's determined to be a faithful witness to Christ every day every step of the way and in the next chapters Paul's going to stand before a governor and a king and he will stand before them as a witness of Jesus you know Paul is not some kind of mystical otherworldly person he's just like us he's got all the same weaknesses and fears that we have but he knows God he knows his God he's going to be faithful he will not be dismayed he's going to persevere in the faith no matter what happens to him, no matter what the circumstances are, because God ordains our steps, and we just have to walk in those steps faithfully. That's what we're called to do. So, will Paul use Roman law to protect himself in the ministry? Absolutely he will. Yes, he will. He will do it any legitimate way he can, he will. Other than that, he follows the Lord. So, next week is kind of like a, we'll have our Christmas service so we'll have a special gospel message and special music and so two weeks from now we'll see what happens to Paul as the story continues okay when he stands before the kings next week would be a great week to bring people uh, neighbors friends or whatever to church especially if anybody's a little hesitant or haven't been there we're just going to have a fun Christmas service now that the message will be a little shorter and gospel focused so it'll really be aimed at um, unbelievers or people are kind of uncertain and things like that so just feel free to bring people so it'll be all Christmas centered okay let's pray Father we just thank you so much Uh, you ordained even that sound to interrupt our our time here but how great you are to ordain our lives according to your perfect will life does hold a lot of surprises Uh, some are very painful but none of it's pointless and we're not just along for the ride you've given us a purpose to bear witness where we are and so we pray that you would help us to do that to bring Jesus to others to serve you faithfully to represent you in this dark world we ask for your aid in doing that always in Christ's name Amen